Yeah, I made sure I got water because I had a coughing fit in the middle of my last podcast. <laughs> oh, that's a great way to attract the listeners. Yeah, I'm in the middle of picks and then I'm just like, hang on. <laughs> Would you like to join a conversation with the Freelancer Show panelists and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. Sign up at freelancershow.com slash forum. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 115 of the Freelancer Show. This week on our panel we have Eric Davis. Hello. Curtis McHale. G'day. Ruben Lerner. Hello from Chicago. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we're starting a little bit different initiative. We decided to do episodes on the things that you should know as you get started or prepare to get started. And so this week we're going to be talking about budgeting and finance and, you know, give you an idea of some of the things that you can do to get ready to go freelance, you know, in those areas. Now, I'm a little curious, were these things that you guys were doing before you went freelance? Nope. I was. Definitely not at all. I mean, I've, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I did very little budgeting before I started my business, and I've gotten better at it, but that's not a high threshold. Yeah, for me, I think we had talked about budgets. Even after I went freelance for a long time, we really didn't do much with the budget, and we're still working the kinks out of our process right now, so it's, it's a hard thing. Do you feel like you were very well financially prepared to go freelance when you did it? Yeah, we had saved six months. Six months of income when I went, and that was something we had decided to do long before, yeah, after listening to other freelance shows at the time, that that's what we needed to do. Very nice. What about you, Eric? Not as well as we wanted. Like, I went freelance right after we moved out of state, and so we, you know, incurred a lot of moving expenses, got up here. My wife basically transferred her exact job, which wasn't the greatest job. It was kind of like a job you have in college. And so we weren't in the best of shape. We had savings and all that because we were always socking money away. But, you know, the savings was at a low point from the move. So, like, ideally, I would have liked to have a couple more months in savings. But it was pretty easy to get started because I actually used my previous employer as, like, my first client. And then uh, stuff kind of got started from there. Very nice. How about you, Reuven? I mean, I really, I started my, no. (laughs) Uh, I hadn't done any budgeting or planning beforehand. I mean, basically, it was when I moved to Israel, I wanted to be a freelancer. I was more or less told, oh, well, you can you can just work for us. This was my last employer. So I never really had a transition. It was just one day I was a salaried employee, the next day I was a freelancer, and I was more or less guaranteed income, and I just sort of hit the ground running then. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, when I went freelance, I had just gotten laid off. So I had money in the bank, but that was because I got severance and a bonus right before I was laid off. So as you can imagine, it <laughs> we, we didn't have an impressive amount of money, and we lived on it for a while before we were actually making money. I think my my sort of thinking was, okay, so I don't have very much savings, but I'll try this freelance thing. And if after a month or two it doesn't work out, fine, I'll go get a real job. And either way, I'm more or less guaranteed to have some sort of income. Right, and that's actually how I started too. It was like, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I I sold my car just because my car maybe would have made it up here driving, even towing, but we didn't really need two cars up here. And so I sold my car and took like half the money from it and like made up that with my wife, like, hey... I'm going to try to do, you know, get some freelance kind of web design, web development projects. If I can make, you know, this business investment money back within three months, I'd like to keep going. If I don't, then I'll use the other, whatever's remaining plus the other half and use that to kind of, you know, get a suit, get a tie, go look for a job. And it ended up, you know, I made it back plus more in the first, basically on the first project, so like first 30, 45 days, and then just grew it from there. 
So like having that bed was kind of like a, a nice little fun thing to get my business started. And it was very, very, very little investment. And that's why I did a lot of kind of grassroots marketing, grassroots starting up stuff. Yeah, I have to say that uh, it was kind of the same thing for me. I mean, we had that severance money and we had the bonus. And the deal that I made with my wife was at the end of the money, I'll get a job, you know. And by the time we got to the end of the money, I had made enough more to where, you know, I could stay freelance. I do wonder, though, a little bit if if things would have been a little bit easier if I'd had a bunch of money in savings. I'm curious, how important do you guys think it is to have money in savings before you try and go out on your own? I think it depends. I mean, I've kind of ran into this a little bit. Like, I had a significant amount in savings, and having that in there, you have a safety net, so, you know, it's kind of the purpose. But if you have too much of a safety net, like, if you're tightrope rocking, but you have a bubble suit on, like, you know, you don't really feel like, oh, I don't need to really do this. It's I don't need to take some risks or kind of push myself too hard. I think the amount that I started with was actually good because it actually, it was enough to catch me if I really fell, but it also made me really get out there and try instead of just like, you know, wasting time or, you know, doing things that really weren't important, weren't actually going to generate sales. And right now, you know, because I took like a break for a while, like my, I still have savings, it's still there, but it's a lot lower than I'm comfortable with. And so I'm actually like more motivated, more like, okay, I don't really want to call this person that I never talked to, but I need to make a sale. So I'm going to get on the phone and call them. I think having too much cash can be a problem, just the same as like not having any at all. I think having some savings is usually going to, look, it depends on your situation, right? If you've got this huge new project, if someone, sort of like what happened with me, where my employer said, we're willing to hire you as a consultant for the freelancer for the next six months or a year. It was really a big project. That gave me the cushion that I needed. And so I didn't need to worry about learning the sales and learning the marketing and getting a pipeline going. But if I just sort of were to decide one day, hmm, this freelance thing sounds great. I think I'm going to do it. And I didn't have any contacts. I hadn't made any sales. Then I think having that cushion in the bank would be pretty crucial because it'll take time to you know ramp up and find the people and make the contacts right and yeah it depends on what other skills or what other resources you have and it's also like how creative can you be in getting those like you know are you in an area where there's a lot of kind of entrepreneur meetups or other business meetups where you can go and meet people so if you don't know people now you have the opportunity to or are you kind of in the middle of nowhere and you don't have that yeah i mean I think you have to have something unless you're building your clientele before you go full time. But I think it would have been a different story for me if I'd had the money because, I mean, we did hit some slow times. We've hit some slow times since where we didn't have an emergency fund, you know, at least a few months of expenses in the bank, which is what I call an emergency fund. And, uh, you know, things would have been a lot easier if, if we'd had because, you know, we could have made it through while I still was out looking for something that I could do for work. So, and I think even though, I'm pretty well connected and, you know, it's pretty easy for me to find work most of the time. I mean, there have still been a few times where it was just hard to come by work. Right. And there's another aspect too. Like for us, my wife was working a full-time job. I mean, it wasn't a career. It paid the bills and all that. But that gave us, I don't think it was enough for us to live off of, but it was very close. And we had our personal savings too. So like worst case, like if I wasn't bringing in a work for three or six months, we weren't going to go hungry. Versus I know, Chuck, in your situation, you, you're you the sole provider for your family. You have a lot larger family than we did at that time. And so, you know, that's a different factor. You know, you have a different risk tolerance than we did. I mean, we were, you know, the stereotypical just out of college young people. Yeah. Well, and you just had your daughter, what, a year ago or something? So. Yeah. And so this was, I started in, I think, summer of 2007. So that was like five years before our first kid. Like we had two cats. Like that was our dependence. Yeah. Curtis, do you think 
having that six months of money in the bank made a difference for you or has made a difference for you over the last however long you've been freelance? I think I did it first. I was lazy to start figuring, hey, I'm freelance. I can, you know, get up and have a coffee slowly and then do a little bit of work and walk the dog for an hour and then come back and it's lunchtime. And so I didn't get a lot of work done at the beginning. But as I saw the money dwindle, I realized, hey, I got to really start get going. And it gave me some time to sort out what that really meant and what it meant to have a productive day. Nice. So the other thing that we kind of mentioned at the beginning of the show was budgeting. I know that the budgeting... We've talked about budgeting on the show before, but I'm curious, you know, as things have gone on, have you guys gotten better at budgeting or, I mean, this is something that I still struggle with, I'll admit. Yes and no, I guess. Like, at first I was very meticulous about different categories. So like what, you know, what most people think of budgeting. Over time, I kind of got to where it didn't matter what the categories were so long as I stayed under a certain total expenses, you know, because I knew what I was going to bring in in revenue. And so, you know, keep total expenses, I have a certain amount of profit. I've since kind of gone back and I haven't been that heavy on categories, but there's some categories I really watch like hosting or advertising where I know they can get out of hand really quick, but I still don't have like this category needs to spend this much, this category needs to spend this much. I'm reading a little bit, learning a little bit about that. And we do that in our personal stuff, but for the kind of the quantity of transactions like for expenses in my business, it just doesn't seem really that useful right now. Now, for us, for my business, we do a yearly kind of budget to estimate everything, and then we check in on it every quarter to see where we are. And it's totally my wife. I'm not sure that I would... In fact, I know I wouldn't budget if my wife wasn't around to help me do it and do most of it, actually. Yeah, I, I must admit I'm pretty bad at budgeting. I mean, both in my personal life and my professional life, certainly I've gotten better at it having a business. And so I'm certainly now at the point where I have a bunch of different clients and each of them pays me different amounts at different times. And so at least being able to project what I'm getting each month, that's something that I've certainly gotten good at. And so I can say, okay, well, we can buy X in two months because I know that such and such a client will be paying them. Or I know that we'll have a surge of income then. Or I know we can pay off various loans then. But I really haven't taken it down to the level of this is how much we pay on X and this is how much we pay on Y. Mostly, I think, because the majority of my expenses are pretty set and fixed and, and unchanging. I take a, a flat salary every month. And then most of the other things are expenses that don't vary that much from month to month. That's interesting. I think that makes it easier to, I don't know, be a little bit more loose with your budget if you know that you're going to reach the watermark that covers all that stuff. And it doesn't vary too much from month to month. I say I have the same expenses pretty much every month. But what we found was when my wife sat down and analyzed the budget, the one year I'd spent like almost five thousand dollars on coffee, which is a lot, right? There was like one hotel in there in my entertainment budget, and that's about it. And so this year we ended up putting seventy five dollars a month on a Starbucks card, which sounds like a crazy amount of coffee, but it's cheaper than five thousand dollars, right? That's true. Yeah, having you've mentioned that before, and having that sort of declining balance as a, a limiting factor is very smart, because it's very common that I'll go out to a client's office, and when I'm there, all the expenses are covered. They'll even treat me to lunch in their company cafeteria, which is kind of nice. But if I'm not there, if I'm just meeting someone, then I'll say, oh, well, I'll just go out to lunch. And it's very tempting to say, oh, I'll just get a big lunch or whatever and put it on the credit card. And that's, I think, it's not necessarily business expenses per se, because in Israel you can't expense those, but that creeps up on you very, very quickly, such that at the end of the month, you've had a lot of very nice lunches, but it's also cut a big hole out of your income. Yeah, and that's what I found, which is why we started tracking it that way now, is putting it on a card and any personal purchase I pay for in cash. And one thing that's important that I think all, all three or at least two of you guys have said, like, you know, you do something yearly, like, 
I do the same thing and I have a spreadsheet and then every month I actually go in and fill it in and put in like, okay, I projected I did this much, but I actually spent this much. And I even base that off of like the kind of every week I do my bookkeeping and accounting and figure out like, okay, well, here's expenses. And so, you know, I look at it from, you know, like all the way from what happened this week with stuff and track it all the way back to the year. And that's nice because then I can forecast for the next year, like, oh, it looks like advertising's gone up or, you know, how much am I spending on training over the last six months? You know, that's going to be my new budget, that sort of thing. And it's kind of more of getting business intelligence around your money flows instead of actually like just making wild guesses. I'm like, oh, I guess I spent $2,000 going to this conference. Oh, where should I put it? Now, do you use software in particular for that or do you use a spreadsheet or how, how do you manage that kind of stuff? I guess we're heading toward bookkeeping versus budgeting and I know the two intersect to a certain degree because the one informs how you're doing with the other but is there software you use do you use a spreadsheet yeah I use GNU cash for the actual bookkeeping and like logging everything and it's just a free open source accounting system I mean think like QuickBooks but without all the complexity you can use anything and we'll probably get into that if we do a, a show on accounting but for the kind of the budget I just use a spreadsheet I've created one a long time ago it has two sheets like one is the projected so I can do all my stuff in there and then I just copy it into a second sheet and that's the actual amounts and then as the month ends I fill it in and it has calculations of like each month my total income expenses my tax estimate and then it also has like a, the yearly totals for like okay how much am I going to spend on software how much am I going to spend on training all that but it's just simple spreadsheet you know the biggest formula is like summing something up in time in it by a percent for taxes. Yeah, that makes sense. I tend to do it a little bit, well, I use a different piece of software is basically what it comes down to, and I just blanked on the name of it, but uh, it's an online system, and I should be able to find it here. Yes. The nice thing about spreadsheets is like I actually have them going back for four or five years, so I can actually review old ones, and I don't have to worry about like, oh, well, this stuff was in a different accounting system or anything like that. Like, it's all in one place. Yeah, I've been using less accounting, that's what it is, and... I'll put a link in the show notes here. And uh, the thing that I like about it is that it basically gives me an interface where I can go in and I can just categorize each expense. It'll show me the expenses so I can categorize it and then I can categorize my income and figure out where everything's coming from. I've been using them for a year or so now and so I've got a good track record of the data there. But then what it tells me is it tells me you spent so much on this and so much on that and so much on this. And so then I can look at it and say, you know, I spent quite a bit on training or quite a bit on travel or quite a bit on equipment and you know then I can look at it and and figure out okay well maybe I should cut back on this area because you know I'm not using that service anymore or I'm not you know I'm, I'm being deliberate about it you know because I know where the money's going but that being said I haven't really set a budget for the business I just look at it and say did I have to spend that and if not then I figure out whether or not it was worth it. Right, that's closer to, to how I do it, where basically, I mean, I more or less know how much I'm spending on different things. It is nice, you know, sometimes, and I'm, I've been perennially bad about this. I tried GNU Cash for a while, and actually I was very impressed by GNU Cash, and it taught me a lot of basic accounting ideas, but I just haven't been disciplined enough to put every single expense in there. And so I have a pretty good idea of how much I'm spending on things, and it's nice then to say, oh, I should be able to cut back on X or Y or Z. But so far, truth be told, I haven't found particular things that are truly sucking up a lot of money. It seems like, you know, between my salary and just the day-to-day expenses, it's, it's covering most things. Although I'll admit that the PhD-related stuff has thrown a monkey wrench into the works, where every so often I just have to fly to Chicago. It doesn't matter if we can afford it or not. i got to come here to meet with my advisor. Yep. Right. Yeah, for me, the budget helps me even track. Like last year, 
my wife highlighted the software category. So whatever iTunes apps or not iTunes, but like app store stuff. And she highlighted that as things I should go through. And she actually pulled them all out and we dug through them all. And we found a bunch of things that were client related expenses. Right. So I even count like plugins for WordPress as software purchase usually. And so we pulled out a bunch of those, but there was still a lot of stuff. And there's like probably 50%. I was like, yeah, I just bought it because it looked cool and I never ended up using it. And so this year I've got a lot tighter on my software purchases. Yeah, that's right. very smart. There are a lot of these things, especially not to offend you guys because your books are actually good, but you know, ebooks where I say, oh, it doesn't cost that much. I'm sure I'll use it. And I would say a good two thirds of the time, I ended up just consuming space on my hard drive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, <laughs> Got I, uh, tons of them. I want to turn the conversation back to people who are new to freelancing or are thinking about going freelancing. What are some of the categories of things that you put into your budget or, you know, look at as areas of expense that they should be uh, looking at and budgeting for? New hardware every couple of years, probably. New, so that's a new computer, maybe new monitor, new keyboard, stuff like that. Yeah, I have a Taxes. Taxes. I have a sad story about that. I was rearranging my office on Friday, and I gouged my monitor pretty good. Ouch. Ouch. Ooh, ooh. So it's got this big line down the middle of it. Not dead pixels, just a scratch that you can see. Anyway, so yeah, so, budget for when you move stuff and ruin your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, accidental damage, yeah. I actually opened my spreadsheet from 2008, which was like my first full year freelancing. Expense-wise, like accounting fees... Education, which at that time included like books and also just normal training and then marketing website. Like I didn't have this broken out. So that'd be like hosting. I think I got some designs. Yeah, I got some designs in that year. I was doing advertising and then software purchases, which also includes like SaaS subscription stuff. And that's pretty much it. And the rest was like little miscellaneous stuff. And all of those things were like, I mean, marketing website, taxes and education were like the big three and everything else is like maybe a fifth of those. I think the big thing even to start is to realize how much expenses will take up. I've informally surveyed, but I've asked a ton of different people, and the number that keeps coming up as a good average is around 20% of your total income is expenses. Um, I've had a few people who are down near 10, and I have a few people I've heard up near like almost 30 sometimes, but you know, in the 22 to 18 is what I hear probably 80% of the time of people say what their total expenses are versus their income. Yeah, that's what mine is. I, I try to keep it at 20%. Mine's a bit higher because I'm a developer, and I so I have a lot more servers and kind of the large costs that you really can't get rid of easily. But yeah, 20% is what I shoot for, and it looks like that's what it was in that year too. Yeah, and by the time, like when you're initially starting and saving for taxes, probably saving, say, 30%, that means 50% of your income is gone, right? So I know you might even need to save more depending on how much you're earning, sometimes 40 or 45%. Right. right, I found 35 is good for me because it covers, uh, here in Oregon, we got higher state taxes. Just It's a U.S. thing. You can talk to an accountant and figure out what your tax rates are, but to cover federal taxes, self-employment taxes, state taxes, and then I like to have a little bit left over in case I completely miscalculate something or if I want to have like extra windfall at the end of the year, I shoot for 35%. I think it's important, though, with all these expenses, be it taxes or just investments you're going to have to make in hardware, software, learning and so forth, that people who are getting into freelancing realize that's why consultants charge more, not just because of the value they're giving, but because you've got all these extra expenses associated with your business. It's not just your salary. And so, you know, you need a computer, well, you're going to have to pay for that. And you need books, you're going to have to pay for those. You need to travel, you're going to have to pay for that. And it adds up rather quickly. I mean, in my case, I do a lot of training in Israel, and so I'm constantly on the train there. And so I guess that's why it's called training, right? 
Anyway, in any event, so I have actually a lot of expenses on the train each month, which of course I can expense, but that's money that's coming out of my pocket. Well, and Curtis has put this in chat, but my wife's in HR, and if you actually are working and you know someone in your company's HR, you just you know someone in it. Talk to them about the real cost of an employee. Curtis says that an employee costs twenty to thirty percent more than their salary. It's more like fifty to hundred percent. Like I, if, I would go with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, As if, an employer, I would totally go with that. If you're making say we'll say fifty grand a year, like that's what your gross salary is, like not even counting taxes, the employer's probably paying another fifty grand for their portion of your taxes to have an office, to have a desk for you, have a computer for you. And there's some figures, depending on what job it is, where it's even double that amount for the first year just because of your drain on everyone else in the company. And so that alone, I mean, that's almost exactly the same for when you're freelancing. Like half your budget goes to taxes and the keep the business running expenses. Different countries will have different ways of doing it. So in Israel, I've got an employee. And granted, he works hourly, but I have to pay... It's mandated by law that I pay into a pension fund for him and that I pay into a severance fund for him so that when he leaves me, he gets one month salary for every year he worked for me. And I have to pay, obviously, like my side of income taxes and health tax. And uh, and then there are one or two extra benefits that just about everyone gets. So, I mean, I'd say it's easy, between 20 and 40% of his salary. And that's because he's not because he's providing his own computer because he's working from home. If he were working on a computer that I bought for him and at an office I was renting it would skyrocket. Lucky you. Yeah, there's a, a story <laughs> where like... That's what my accountant... My accountant is always scratching his head like, why do you have this guy working for you? But the fact is, it lets me do bigger projects than I could do on my own, but it doesn't come free. Mm-hmm. I'd say there's a story in like startup and SaaS businesses where like the cost of just toilet paper in a day for like a Fortune 500 size company is more than what they'll spend on the top tier for your SaaS product for the entire year. And when you run numbers of the, like how much stuff costs and how much people would go through, like it makes sense. And when you go freelance, you have to account for all that either out of the business stuff, if it's you make it a business thing, or if you work at home, like wear and tear on your home, supplies you use at your home, that sort of thing. Yeah, let me tell you about my toilet paper bill. <laughs> Amazon Prime. Four kids, huh? <laughs> no, I'm okay, thanks. <laughs> Actually, that, that raises an issue also in terms of expenses, which is if you work from home, Again, this depends on what country you're in and your accountant and, and how much you want to take advantage of that, the gray area between your personal life and your business. But you can almost certainly, you know, basically count as a business expense a lot of the home stuff. So, for instance, my wife and I both work from home and I have an actual room that's my office and she works out of our bedroom and we often have meetings in, like the living room. So I think our accountant has said we can count about 25% of our home expenses as the business. So that means electricity, gas, water, property tax, and a bunch of other things. Yeah, for me, it's 15%. My accountant says he's had people that just say, tell him to write down more than that. And in very few cases, has it ever panned out when they decide to get audited? He's had one or two clients that literally did like the whole you know bottom floor of their house was their office. I do 15. Yeah, I think I just go by square footage. And then, yeah, you can deduct the percentage, whatever it is. Yeah, I could do that. And we did the quick math and it was pretty like it was within a couple percentage points of 15. So he said it. he's had people audited where it was like, you know, it actually came up to 13. The government just said, eh, they didn't really sweat that little bit. Right. Yeah. yeah same here. It's square footage. And then like whatever the square footage percentage of the house is, that's what I get taxed write offs on, like, you know, the Internet or electricity, all that. So we try to keep it simple, but still kind of, you know, not not too much on the side of I don't want to upset the IRS. 
Yeah. Yeah. And for me, because my internet is like, it is something I require to do my job. We write that off as a hundred percent write off, which I'm told up in Canada, that's totally fine. My accountant says that's what he does. I know in some places you should check the law too. Like you need an actual door. It needs to be a totally separate room for it to be counted as an office. Yep. Here in the U S it does, or at least in my state it does. Wow. Yeah. And also like there are other things that we do, uh, that so the business pays for or owns. So we get the morning newspaper every day, you know, might sound quaint, but I love getting the newspaper in the morning on paper. You know, <laughs> one of the last few people doing that. And actually the way in Israel works is certain newspapers are considered to be okay for expenses because they're, you know, better newspapers or they have business sections, whereas others would not be considered that way. And our car is owned by the business now, uh, as opposed to either leasing or having our own car. But there, so we have to do it the other way around, where we have to pay taxes on our use of the business's car. And that's where I just completely hand it over to my accountant and say, whatever you say, that's fine with me. Yeah. For me, we own the car and I write off a percentage of the expenses based on how much I drove for work. I actually do the same thing for my bike as well, um, my bicycle, because I'll ride it like as transportation to and from meetings. And that counts as a write-off percentage-wise, which means like my trip back from Portland, a 700k ride will increase my bicycle write-off a lot this year. <laughs> Wait, I, okay. I'm curious. How, how, do, how do you write off? Like, is it wear and tear on the bike? Is it, Yeah, like I ride enough that I need... I ride enough that I spend like $120 every two months on tires and I need a new chain. I know it's just wear and tear, right? That you wouldn't even think of, but I ride a lot. So I will need new tires when I get back from my trip. So I know I always tell my wife that because it's the bike, it means I can spend more on it, right? Because it's a write-off and she just scowls at me and and, and I don't spend any more. So we pay for all of it personally, all my bike stuff. In the U.S., that's called creative accounting. When I... Talked to my accountant about it, and he said, "No, that's absolutely totally valid." It's a no. I meant uh, how you're how you're pitching. Oh to yeah, your yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how I said we should spend more because we get to write off more, right? No. I think that's creative marriaging more than accounting. Yeah, I know. The one year, like when I rode back, rode to and from Seattle a couple times for business stuff. I was like, I think I wrote off fifty percent of all bicycle expenses, which I mean, it doesn't amount to a lot. We spend way more in maintenance on the car, right? Like, but it still was something that assisted in the income tax department. Yeah, it makes sense. Are there other expenses that we haven't really discussed that people should be aware of going into freelancing? I mean, well, there's having an accountant, right? I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I'm paying my accountant, I guess it's about the equivalent of about $400 a month, maybe a little more. And that's to do all of my month to month bookkeeping. Like I bring, he has an office, so I bring them this pile of papers every month with all my receipts and paperwork, and they do the bookkeeping on that, and then they deal with actually the electronic transfer of taxes to the government each month as well. And they say, just please approve, you have to pay XYZ for this month. So, And strangely enough, I always approve it. But then there's also an additional expense of doing a yearly audit. So I probably end up paying, I don't know, $600 a month. And when I looked around last year, I said, you know, maybe there'll be someone cheaper. Actually, turns out my accountant is the cheapest one in town. So, but it's a definitely a big expense. Aside from the government, the accountant is the one person who I can't say, no, I'm not going to pay you. Because without him, I'm, I'm really sunk. You also can't yeah. tell him you don't have any money, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, for me, I pay a virtual assistant to keep up my complex spreadsheet. And my accountant, I see once a year, really. And he, I've been seeing him for 10 years now. And he does my taxes for me. But he, every year I ask him, do I need to upgrade my accounting system? And he says, nah. So I just keep my spreadsheet that we've been working on for 10 years together. Yeah, and see, I I use less accounting, and then I go sit down with my accountant, and I take in my profit and loss statement, 
and, you know, a handful of other papers that, you know, mean tax exemptions one way or the other. And then we sit down and then he's like, okay, how many miles did you drive? And so I check my mileage logs and I tell him and, you know, this and that and whatever. But having that profit and loss is 99% of the information he needs. And so then the rest of it is just filling in the blanks. But yeah, yeah, having a good accountant is awesome. Yeah, for me, my accountant gets one piece of paper, which is like the final sheet on my spreadsheet. That's a summary of everything. And that's it. And then he gets, you know, like donations slips or whatever for my wife and I, but he does them both for us. Yeah, he files for the business and for our personal stuff, which it's all one bill when it comes out, you know, you owe this much, go pay the government. Right. In Israel, most people don't fill out tax forms. The only people who do are very wealthy or own businesses. Um, so basically, when my accountant does the annual audit and profit and loss statement for my company, and then the income tax statement to the tax authorities, so he throws in our personal taxes as well and takes care of that. Yep. So one other question I have, we talked about hardware and software and stuff. Some of the hardware and software out there is, let's just say, not cheap. So for example, I just bought a new MacBook Pro, and uh, the MacBook Pro cost what? $1,300. I got it refurbished and I got it. Uh, it's the newest model of the MacBook Pro. But anyway, so it's got the retina screen and all the nice stuff. Anyway, what I'm wondering is, do you guys save up over time for that kind of stuff? Or do you just pay it out as an expense every so often when you have the money to do it? I set money aside all the time for it in my savings account, and then I have an emergency. Like, if I drop my MacBook Air, I'd just go buy a new one. I wouldn't even sweat it, because I have enough extra in my emergency funds that i just buy it and then continue to save again. And that's yeah, I, kind of what I would do. I don't put money away all the time, but, like, I make sure my savings account's at a certain amount, and if I have a problem, I just go buy a new thing. I got started with, like, Frankenstein repurposed old parts from desktops, because I was on Linux, so I didn't need fancy certified hardware. And that worked for a while. I would, like, you know, oh, RAM failed buy another stick of RAM. Oh, hard drive failed, buy another hard drive. You know, very little expenses. Um, and it was nice because I could even overnight stuff and it was like it was worth it to pay an extra 40 bucks to have a piece overnighted to me just so I can get back to work. Um, now I use a laptop, which it came out during December. Like my account's like, you're going to have extra money. So I'm like, cool, I'll just buy a new laptop because it'll, it'll be a write-off for me this year. And then I have backup laptop and then I can always get another machine if I really have to. More as like, oh, this thing broke. I need to be able to work for a little bit while a new one's coming along. But I don't set aside money for it. My stuff's not nearly as expensive as the Apple products. So if it fails, it's not like a really deep hole in my pocket. Yeah, I remember we got a laptop for my wife a few years ago. And she's probably due for a new one. And we actually had gotten her a Mac a number of years ago. And she despised it. So this time around, we got, as she called it, a normal computer. And I was pretty surprised by how much less it cost. I was like, really? That's it? Oh, boy. I don't set aside money for it. I probably should. That's a very smart idea. Because if I were to set aside like $50 a month, I'd probably buy a new computer every three to four years. And last year, I guess at about this time, my hard drive started to fail. And so I got a new hard drive. Like I was sort of doing a piecemeal. And then it was pretty clear. No, no, no. Just the machine is on death's door. So when I came to the U.S. then in July of last year to work in the dissertation, I literally had it shipped to me next day air so that the day I arrived, it would get to me. And that was, you know, a fair chunk of cash. But there was sort of no way around it. I just needed it in order to, you know, for my business to keep going. Yeah, some things I actually, I found when I tap on normal keyboards, I get, I don't know if it's RSI or whatever, but my hands start hurting. I get a lot of pain. And I used kind of a ergonomic ones, and I found ones that work for me. And it works so well that I actually bought a second keyboard that's still in the box in the closet. And I have a second mouse in the closet. And then because 
you know, we do these podcasts every week. I have a second microphone in the closet. So I have backup equipment. That's not like kind of like a, it's not in case I break something. It's in case like something stops working or I need to jump on it and I don't have the time to get to the store because I can lose a computer and I can be working on a different computer. That's fine. But if I lose my keyboard, I, it actually hurts for me to type for more than an hour or two. And so that's actually a severe detriment. And so a long time ago, I did like a risk assessment of like what would cause my business to slow down or completely stop and kind of figure out how to work around those risks and buying extra peripherals for my stuff was actually very inexpensive and gave me a lot of peace of mind about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I went through like, I don't know, probably 10 keyboards in a year to find the one that I like. Yeah, so you have the equipment. Uh, You guys mentioned that you set money aside. So you kind of have an emergency fund in your business and personal. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, yeah, we run double emergency funds. I have uh, it's a few months right now. I have a business one, and then the personal one is a few months as well. That would cover full salary, not just expenses, but full salary. I've been doing that, I guess, in the business for about a year and a half, two years now. Every month, I put aside, I'm guessing, a little less than a thousand dollars, and then the personal as well. And I found that's just a great, easy way to save money. Not only that, like not only is that a good idea to have for emergencies and so forth, but if and when you ever need to take a loan out from the bank, they're much, much more likely to lend you money if you actually have money in the bank than if you don't. Suddenly it becomes a no-brainer for them. Mm-hmm. And one kind of category of expenses we didn't cover is like the startup expenses. Like if your city or state or locality needs like permits or licenses, or I know a lot of people spend a lot of money getting a logo or like a letterhead, business cards, all that, that can add up to, you know, a thousand, couple thousand, maybe even more. But I found realistically, because I've started up a lot of businesses and killed them off. And I found if you need like business license or like I've seen like home occupation license saying like, you know, you work at home, those are good. And they're like maybe a couple hundred. But anything more than that, like you don't need to set up a corporation, you don't need to do an LLC, like that stuff's all optional. Um, and same for logos and letterhead, all that stuff. Like, you know, maybe set aside some budget, like out of like your first client and your first actual check you get, like, okay, I'm going to get my business cards out of this one, but don't feel you need that as like the day you start up. I did that and it was, it was a waste of money. I could have waited a couple months and actually put that money into marketing or something else and got started faster. Yeah, I didn't get my business license for a year of running, and then I talked to someone. Or maybe it was after my tax return or something. Someone called me and said, "Hey, do you have a business license?" And I said, "Nope." And they said, "Well, you should come down and get one." And it was a hundred bucks. It was not a big deal. So I have bright pink pieces of paper sitting on my shelf because no one ever comes to my house to see them, right? So yeah, I think the business license in my city is seventy-five bucks. I've been in business here for four years, about, and I still don't have one. Well, I certainly have friends in town that run like the exact similar business as me who have never got one. They never got a call. I would never have even known to get one if they hadn't called me. So I do it now because I'm on the radar. I'm trying to be a better person, so now I feel guilty for not following the law. Good. I'm glad you do. Well, I mean, with me, it's a little different because in Israel, you because people don't file their own taxes, typically, if you get income of any sort, either self-employed or... Well, if, if you get income as someone who's self-employed, you have to register with the government, either as someone who's self-employed or have your own business, what I do, and I just pay myself a salary from it, which meant registering with uh, three different government agencies, with income tax, with national uh, security, or uh, yeah, which is sort of like social security, and with uh, the VAT office, uh, value-added tax, which is sort of like sales tax. And so each of those is registered with the government. And then on top of that, and that, that registration, I don't remember what it cost back when I set up my business. That was pretty trivially cheap. But every year then, I have to pay to be registered with the justice ministry and i'm guessing it's the equivalent of like three or four hundred dollars each year just to be sort of a a licensed business in the country 
So if I were self-employed, it would be less. But because I'm an LTD, like a limited liability company, it's it's more. And of course, in Israel, because everything is sort of negotiable and a little, uh, you know, things can be lax. So if you don't pay one year, they won't say anything. Just the next year, they'll say you owe for this year and for last year. And I think they have spaces on there for up to five or six years of delinquency before they really start getting angry. Yeah, and I want to make it clear, paying for like business licenses for your city versus paying for like corporation registration or LLC registration, those are different. And one, I'm not an attorney, none of us are, this isn't legal advice, but if you do, you could skip your city one and there's not really that many ramifications. If you skip your LLC or corporation payment and someone sues you, they could do what's called piercing the corporate veil, which instead of them just suing your corporation and you know killing your business, they could actually reach through and hit your personal assets. So like your house, your car, any wages you're going to make, retirement accounts. So if you have to like not pay something, make sure that it's like city or something that's not really that important. Always pay your corporation LLC stuff, even if it's late. Like it's that gives any people who are suing or attorneys like a lot of ammunition against you that you are quote not a professional and a whole bunch of other stuff. So I yeah, I mean I didn't pay some city licensing and I didn't pay like a home occupancy one for one of my businesses and it wasn't a big deal. But I made sure to pay all my um, tax fees and all that stuff. Yep, makes sense. So do you have any other advice for people who are getting ready to go freelance or who have just started as far as managing their finances that we haven't talked about yet? One thing, we talked about all expenses on the income side of it. Unless you actually have a client and you're sending them invoices and you're getting checks back from them right now, if you're trying to forecast, like, I have this lead and we're about to sign, pretty much double how long you think it's going to take. You know, if you think it's going to take, like, three weeks to get this project started and closed, it's going to actually take six weeks before you actually see the money. You know, double all of your estimates because that puts it on the conservative side. Most businesses, they don't really go out of business because they don't have revenue. They go out of business because they ran out of cash. So they might have cash coming in, but they didn't have enough to like pay their salary, keep their lights on, that sort of thing. It's deep financial stuff, but it's like cash flow forecasting versus income state stuff. And Keep your estimates on the conservative side as far as income and keep them on the aggressive side. Like my expenses are going to be higher than I think. That's a good, helpful thing to start. And if you're wrong, like if your income comes in right away and your expenses are a lot lower than you thought, that's kind of a bonus windfall you can take advantage of. I agree 100%. And you should expect clients to pay late. If they don't, that's wonderful. Uh, I mean, I have different clients who pay on different schedules. It's very typical in Israel for people to pay net plus 30, which means if I invoice them on May 31st, I will see that money July 1st. And so keeping that sort of cash flow going and being able to know, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to get this amount of money in July and this amount of money in August several months in advance is crucial. And of course, then there are the people who just don't pay and you have to go and nag them and that takes away from your time as well as then raises the question of, well, when are you going to see that money? Yeah, I just want to point out, though, that we have done other shows on, like, value-based marketing or value-based pricing and the weekly pricing one that we did with Curtis, where basically they get paid part or entirely up front. So, you know, those are options. I've also gotten deposits, and what that does is that pushes that timeline for getting cash to the end of the project. And so, you know, you have to pick up something quicker at the end. But it is definitely something to consider and, you know, be aware of as it happens. Yeah, and I, I would say like some of these things, if you do them early on, if you start doing weekly billing where you get paid in advance, if you can pull it off from the start of your business, you're going to be in so much better shape than 
you know, someone like me where I've, I've been working with so many people for so many years hourly or daily now more and more where switching things around is not only hard for me, but I have to go to clients and then start to explain it. So it's going to be a longer process. Yep. All right. Any other uh, pearls of wisdom here or should we get to the picks? Just oysters here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Curtis, you want to start us with picks? Sure. I'm going to pick Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover book, which we've probably mentioned before. And I'm just probably going to beat Chuck to it, too. And then for my keyboard, after trying 10, <laughs> I'm going to pick Dave. Yeah, I'm just going to pick Dave in general. And for my keyboard, which I've been through 10, I actually have a Kinesis Freestyle Solo. I have a version 1. They have a version 2 out that's slightly different. And they have a Mac version. And if you type Dvorak like I do and you let them know for $5, they'll actually reprogram the keys on the motherboard, on the board on top so that they actually work. Because I don't have any of the fancy keys on the left side that work. I like the arrow keys or anything, or the fancy, whatever they are, undo commands. They do other things. So it's an excellent keyboard that I've had for, I guess, two years now. I have to ask, did you start out with a QWERTY keyboard and then switch to Dvorak? Or... Yeah, I started out QWERTY and I switched to Dvorak two years ago. I probably got the keyboard and then like three months later, I was still having some wrist issues. That was way better. Uh, and I switched to Dvorak and I actually switched on a Friday. So I'd practice all weekend, figuring on Monday I'd go back and then I'd practice one more weekend. And then on Monday, I was like, I can't type either way. So I just went with those straight into Dvorak on Monday. And I, yeah, probably took three months to really get all the way back up to where I was, but I was say at 80% of my productivity and speed within like the, by the end of the week. So no risk pain at all. And it's like extra security because no one can type on my keyboards. Very cool. Eric, what are your picks? Okay, so I got two picks today. One's an app I've been using. Uh, it's for iPhone, iPad. It's called 3030. Uh, it's basically like a to-do task manager type thing, you know, where you have different tasks and you kind of slide it off and it has timers and all that. I'm actually using it as a Pomodoro timer. So I have two tasks that reoccur. It's Pomodoro for 25 minutes and then break for five minutes. And it's nice because I have it on an old iPad that's like full screen. So it's telling me exactly what I need to do. It has the you know dinging when it's done. I can pause. I can add time, remove time, finish early. I've tried a bunch of Pomodoro apps and like all of them are too restrictive. Like they actually don't follow what the method allows you to do. But this 3030 app actually works really good. And I've been using it for a couple of weeks now pretty consistently. And then the second to be kind of on topic, MicroConf, there is a presenter, Jesse. He's like the founder CEO of You Need a Budget. It's youneedabudget.com. They make like kind of personal finance software that does like heavy budgeting. Like if you've heard of the envelope method, it's based on that. I don't know if it's a new thing they're doing or what, but um, they have a kind of an email course about doing budgeting for business. And it's nice because he's actually, I think he has an accounting degree. He had like a CPA license, all that stuff. And so he knows accounting. And in his email course, he basically gets on accounting and QuickBooks about how bad it is and how it basically doesn't help your business at all. I mean, I have a finance background I subscribe to and I learned some stuff from that that like I'm going and actually applying to my business, like using budgeting, accounting, finance to actually drive my business instead of just looking back of how much I spent. So the email course looks like it's nine days. It's free. You can sign up. He has some pretty cool rules. And if you follow Dave Ramsey or any kind of modern personal finance, you'll see a lot of similarities between it. Very nice. My wife and I use YNAB or You Need a Budget for our personal budget. That's a really terrific program. Yeah, and I would, but I mean, I'm, like I said before, like I'm on Linux, so I can't use it. It's a desktop app, although there is rumors that there might be a different style or format of it coming out soon. So if you get on that list, I heard that he'll actually announce it on there. So Very nice. Reuven, what are your picks? Okay, so I got a few picks for this week. First of all, I found this wonderful blog post uh, about pre-qualifying clients 
where this, I think he's a developer, it might be a designer, said, this is what we do before we speak to a client. These are the questions that we ask them. And it was a really, really nicely laid out way to go through things with a client. You know, what is your budget? What are you planning to do? How many people are going to be working on this? And it gives you both a good picture of what the client is doing and how serious they are and whether it's a good match, whether they really are prepared to pay what you might be interested in charging them or if they're willing to pay what will probably be necessary to, to get it done. So I, th- I thought that was very good. Secondly, uh, Econ Talk is this great podcast with this uh, economist, Russ Roberts. And just the most recent one that I was listening to this morning is with Mark Andreessen, famous from Netscape and a bunch of other companies and now pretty well-known venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. I thought it was very interesting to hear him talk about both the future of technology companies and venture capital. Not that I really have any day-to-day workings with VC firms or I'm interested in getting any sort of investment. Interesting for me to hear uh, what someone involved in that has to say about uh, the future of technology companies. And then there's also this great, great site that I've seen mentioned on Facebook and other places, uh, Tyler Viggen. I'm not sure if that's a person or a place or something, but it's this website that lists spurious correlations. It's just wonderful stuff. So for instance, it shows that there's a really, really tight correlation between number of people who tripped over their own two feet and died and the number of lawyers in Nevada. And if you look over time, it's, it's a pretty close correlation there. And of course, the whole idea is to show you that you can have two numbers that, or, or two measures that are really, really closely aligned. But just because they're correlated doesn't mean that they're causal. And you can have a lot of fun, way too much fun with a site, just looking through the correlations that other people have found, let alone find new ones. So I feel obligated then to also mention in the fix the XKCD comic about correlation and causation. And if you <laughs> haven't seen that before, well, that's why you're not laughing. Anyway, those are my picks for this week. And there's one I heard where it's someone looked at the data of deaths from shark attack and amount of ice cream sold. And there was actually a really, really good trend there. And people were thinking about banning ice cream to kind of prevent the deaths from sharks. (laughs) 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 All right, I've got a couple of picks. The first pick, I just finished Dave Ramsey's book, Entree Leadership. So when you said you were going to pick one of his books, I was like, yep, beat me again. But I'm picking a different one. I think you picked it in the past, Curtis. But Entree Leadership has a lot of good information in there. I'm seriously considering building a consultancy, you know, so I have other freelancers and folks working for me. And I'm really considering, you know, implementing a lot of this stuff. Another book that I've been listening to that is, it's somebody else and they're talking about how they ran their business. It's Jack Welch, the way he ran GE. It's a little bit bigger company than Dave Ramsey's company. His book is called Winning and it's got a lot of good stuff in there too. And then I also have, I've been playing a lot of a game called Hearthstone, which is, uh, it's a card like Magic or Pokemon game, except it's on the computer, and it's got like Warcraft-type characters in it. It's built by Blizzard. You get it on Battle.net, and it's been kind of fun. I can usually play a game in 10 to 20 minutes. Anyway, so I've been enjoying that. If you want to, I don't know if there's a way to actually find other people you know on there and play against them, but... Really, really liking that. So, oh, one other pick I have. I rearranged my office. My father-in-law came in and helped me move things around. I've got this. It's basically a cubicle, which is kind of funny because I never had a cubicle until I went freelance. But it's basically a (laughs) cubicle. And um, on my right here are, like, full-height walls. So they're five, five-and-a-half feet tall. And then on my left, you know, they're the four-foot-tall walls that... Are they four feet? They might be, like, three, three three-and-a-half feet. Anyway... The full height walls were in front of my window. (laughs) And so in my office, I really couldn't see out the window. I couldn't open it. It was just kind of a pain. 
And uh, now that it's all moved around, I can like see outside and the sun can shine in. And it's really nice. I know that some programmers and some people that work from home, you know, the sunlight makes them melt or something. But anyway, it's nice to have all this natural light in here and it just makes my day better. And I, <laughs> I can't quantify why, but it does. So anyway, that's my other pick, sunlight. But yeah, anyway, I think that's it. I think we're done. So I want to thank everybody for listening and we'll catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.